Welcome to The Knowledge Project. I'm your host, Shane Parrish, the curator behind the Farnham Street blog, which is an online community focused on mastering the best of what other people have already figured out. The Knowledge Project is a place where we look at interesting people, ideas, and uncover frameworks to make better decisions, live life, and understand reality. On this episode, I have Ray Dalio. Ray is the founder, chair, and co-chief investment officer of Bridgewater Associates. Bridgewater started out of a two-bedroom apartment in New York in 1975 and has grown into the largest hedge fund in the world and one of the most important private companies in the United States. As you'll hear from this conversation, this was no fluke. We talk about why Ray punched his boss in the face, his principles for living and work, the nuances of Bridgewater's culture, technology, why so few people deal with reality, mental models, how to build an idea meritocracy, and how to make better decisions, and there's so much more. Intellectually, Ray's answers will cause you to question why things aren't more like this. They might just change the way you live. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Before I get started, here's a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Inktel. Every business needs great customer service in order to stand out and gain a competitive advantage. Yet many businesses struggle with how to provide their customers with world-class customer service. Inktel Contact Center Solutions is a turnkey solution for all of your customer care needs. Inktel trains their customer service reps to know your business almost as well as you do and help you build your brand. Managing a call center can be a complicated, expensive, and time-consuming task. And you still might not be able to do it well. So do what many leading companies do and outsource your customer service needs to a partner who specializes in taking care of your contact center needs. Inktel can provide your company with every touchpoint, including telephone, email, chat, and social media. As a listener of this podcast, you can get up to $10,000 off if you go to inktel.com slash Shane. That's I-N-K-T-E-L dot com slash Shane. Ray, thank you so much for agreeing to this interview. I'm thrilled to be here. I want to start with the story of you punching your boss in the face. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, um, I was, he and I were drunk on New Year's Eve and, um, you know, and we had, um, we had this playful, fun, uh, challenging relationships and I decked him and um, he then crashed the car when he went home and his wife chewed him out and, and um i figured that i was going to lose my job and then he came in uh the next day and or the day after and with a black eye and he had no problem with me and he said hey listen that was what it was like uh but we, you know we just you know it was a, a moment and it was fun and uh, i had a lousy new year's eve but no hard feelings and we got past that and it was why are you interested Oh, I'm interested in that story because it's the story that everybody kind of talks about, but nobody really knows a lot of the details behind. I mean, it's something you've released before, but. Mm -hmm. I was at a certain age and I had a certain kind of, um, you know, spirit, I would say. I don't know what you call it, but I was a little bit, uh, you know, uh, wild at the time. And, you know, uh, uh, anyway, it was it was it's interesting to evolve, you know. Tell me what a day looks like for a typical day, if there is one, for the world's largest hedge fund manager. Well, I 
I wake up and immediately check uh, what the markets and the news are doing. And then I um, I was in a stage where I used to run the company and then deal with the markets simultaneously. So I was juggling both things. Um, now I'm in a stage where I'm just following the markets and, and you know the economics. Um, it's not a fast-paced type of existence. It's more of a thoughtful type of existence. So I've got a group of brilliant people. I come in. Uh, we usually hit uh, a big meeting. Um, uh, it'll usually be a research meeting. We're examining something uh, that uh, is uh, happening. Every, everything happens over and over again. Right? Everything, um, I, we think of this as everything's another one of those. So uh, by being able to look at history and make the connections and examine how the mechanics of the cause-effect relationships are, that's what we spend a lot of time doing. And then we convert those rules, those principles, into algorithms. So through the day, I'm doing that uh, mostly and reflecting uh, on, on mostly on the markets uh, with interesting people. And we debate a lot. Um, so um, and, and that'll carry through the day. Uh, I imagine everybody's throwing information at you. How do you filter what's valuable and what's noise? Well, I don't let them randomly throw the information at you know i I'm very um stepping back. I'm much more um like to go to kind of a what I might describe as a higher level there's there's the blizzard that everybody's normally in, and that's where they're caught with all these things coming at them. And I prefer to go above the blizzard and just organize. Uh, so I'm, it's it's uh, organized that way. I, I I also should say that I meditate. So bef I, I started my day when you gave me the uh, question as I started my business day. I should say I also find that meditation has been fantastic, and I do that regularly. So um, I want to always maintain uh, an equanimity. Um, not get caught in the blizzard to try to be more strategic. And so um, I don't, I manage that. Tell me the story about how you came to Transcendental Meditation. Well, I was, um, uh, it was 1969 and the Beatles had meditated and went to India and um, I read about it and it became popular and I was curious about it. So I took my, I don't remember it was, it was very $50 fee and my flowers and I went to uh, this place and I learned how to meditate and um, and it, it uh, one of the most important, greatest things in my life because uh, it allowed me to have an equanimity. Um, you want me to describe a little bit? What yeah, please do. What, what, what it's like? Um, okay, it's a simple exercise really in which uh, one has a, a mantra, which is a sound or a mm -hmm. made-up word. And when you repeat it over and over again with your breath, it takes your mind away from your thoughts and it directs those attentions to your mantra. And then when you keep doing that, the mantra disappears and you go into your subconscious. And when you're in your subconscious mind, um, that's extremely uh, powerful because... Uh, so much comes from our subconscious mind. That's where our creativity comes from, you know. That's when in intuitions and all of that happens. And so it opens a passageway between one's subconscious and one's conscious. So it, you're not in an unconscious state like sleeping, and you're not in a conscious state. 
And so that exercise, it allows you to completely eliminate stress and it, and it fosters creativity. Because when you think of creativity, it's not that you go muscle it. It's more like, you know, you take a hot shower and these great ideas come to you. Well, that's what happens. So meditation um, creates that um, that equanimity. It creates that uh, vehicle for the connection between the subconscious and the conscious. And it allows creativity. And I really think that then the reconciliation of what is subconscious and what is logical is very powerful. Because your instincts, your uh, intuitions and so things, those sort of things, um, may be invaluable insights and they may be wrong. And when one can reconcile their subconscious thoughts, those instincts, those intuitions with their logic and the consciousness, it's very, very powerful. So that gives me an equanimity that helps keep me out of the blizzard. Was this something that took off right away for you, or was it something that you had to work at to establish this? Uh, you mean the ability to get to that spot? Yeah, like you, it's you, a practice. It's it's a simple exercise, and the more you do it, the more you get better at it. And you know, the deeper you go, the easier it is. It's like I suppose if you were doing yoga or you were doing almost anything, you get better with time. I assume the Beatles were a pretty big influence on you if you've kind of followed this. Because well, I like the Beatles, but um, it wasn't as much that as, you know, the practice. The practice of meditation was way more than the Beatles. The Beatles were interesting and a good rock group, and I love music. <laughs> I'm, I'm, my dad was a jazz musician, and I love music. Uh, so, um, but it wasn't the Beatles. It was this this thing I tripped along on when the meditation. Who were your biggest influences over maybe the seventies and eighties, kind of? Um, well, I think I think if you take the sixties and the seventies, and then you get into the eighties, uh, what affected me was it was an era of. Um, aspirational, ideological, ideological is probably, ideals. So you have to understand, let's say, um, John Kennedy, if you start off, was a man who believed that we were going to conquer outer space, eliminate poverty, and produce equal rights. And so um, he was a very charismatic figure. And all through my life, there were um, people who were um, inspirational um I will call them shapers. They will visualize the future. It was an era when the United States was the most powerful country in the world, still is, of course, but in a way different. We counted for 40% of the world's economy. Um, we, had, we were dominant in, in, in almost any respect. And uh, the reaching for the stars, literally, was all part of that aspirational, that greater thing. And so when you take that, and then um, we went into an era of that creative rebelliousness. And I would say that I admired um, um, uh, Steve Jobs, Martin Luther King, uh, those people who were uh, uh, rising above and, and, and having that. Uh, people who I would consider to be highly principled people. Um, and also, um, so then, you know, there were just uh, so many of those types of people at the at the time. Were you a big reader? Um, I wouldn't say I was a big reader. I was, um, and it, of course, it depends on my uh, my age when I'm asking that question. No, I wasn't a, a big reader. I was a big experiencer more. You know, I 
I like experiences. Um, tell me the story about how Bridgewater almost went bankrupt. Um, so I started Bridgewater in, in 1975. So pick up where we last left off. Punch my boss, didn't get fired that time. Um, not long after that, um, did another, uh, it had another incident and got fired. And that was 1975. And, um, and, but the clients of, uh, at the time, Shearson was the firm that I was working with, were, which were big hedgers at the time, uh, were, wanted to continue to work with me. And so they paid me fees and I started out. So from 1975 until 1982, 82 is the period. Yep. Can you imagine this? It was seven years of building a business, making a lot of good and bad decisions, but many more good ones and bad ones, and built up my little business. And then in 1982, um, I had calculated that a number of countries would not be able to pay back their debts to American banks. And the American banks had 250% of their capital out to them in loans, so they were going to go bankrupt. And this was a very controversial point of view. I mean, people, I thought we're going to have an economic uh, collapse and because the banks wouldn't collapse. And then what happened is, um, lo and behold, on August 1982, Mexico defaults on its debts. And people started to see this. And that led me to getting a lot of attention. So it was put on Wall Street week, I was um, asked to testify to Congress to help them understand this debt crisis and so on and so forth. And I thought we were going into a depression. And this was the worst economy ever. And it turned out, if you look at the exact bottom in the stock market, August 1982, when Mexico defaulted, that was the exact bottom in the stock market. And that's because then the uh, Federal Reserve printed money and did and these interest rates and so on and so forth. But that was totally wrong. So I lost clients and it cost me money. And I uh, had to let everybody I uh, who worked with me go. And we were a very tight group of people. So it was like losing extended family. I was so broke that I had to borrow $4,000 from my dad. And I had to make a choice. Am I going to go to work for somebody else or am I going to work through this? And this, um, so it was a you know terrible experience, but it turned out to be maybe the most valuable experiences or one of the most valuable experiences of my life because it changed my approach to decision-making. I went from thinking, you know, I'm right to asking myself, how do I know I'm right? In other words, how do I triangulate? It gave me the humility I needed to balance with my audacity. And so then it gave me an open-mindedness. And from that point forward, everything was better. We can get into but what, what changed. Uh, that raised my probabilities of being right and managed and allowed me to manage risk. So for that point forward, you know, everything became better really um, until today. And that's what I'm trying to convey in the book. If I can convey that to people at this stage in my life, my goal is to pass along the most valuable things I've learned. And, and and really, that is the most valuable thing I learned. Would you say that was the seed of when the principles started? Yeah. It was um, what I learned was um, th the value of thoughtful disagreement. I, I learned a few things. I've, I learned radical open-mindedness. I think the greatest tragedy of mankind and the greatest tragedy of most people 
is to hold opinions in their head that are wrong, that they're attached to, and that they don't stress test. It's so easy to take those ideas and properly put them out there in an idea meritocratic way and have them stress tests, which raises the probabilities of being right. So I learned radical open-mindedness. Um, and I'll explain what an idea meritocracy is like because I'd, I'd like to do that. I learned how to balance risks better, right? So I learned that if um, how um, I could reduce my risks without reducing my returns by being able to literally structure my bets in a more diversified way. So, and I learned also to look at history that of things that never happened in my lifetime. Uh, Whenever I was surprised, and I think whenever most people it's surprised, it's because of something that never happened in their lifetime before, but it happened before. So it doesn't happen in their context, but it happened so you don't see it, so you don't think about it. That's right. Like the 2008 financial crisis. Um, in the 2000 financial crisis, almost everybody thought that was unplausible. The only reason we were able to anticipate it and benefit from it is because it, we felt that it was necessary to understand what had happened in the 30s and what happened before because it, the same things happen over and over again. And once you get the idea that they just may not have happened in your lifetime, it could be a hurricane, it could be a plague, it could be whatever it is. Some things happen once every 75 years, particularly debt crises and those kinds of things. So that, So those were the three things. The three things were First, to know how to have um, an idea of meritocratic decision-making, knowing that I might be wrong, having that fear. The second was really knowing how to balance my bets. And the third was really how to gain a, a perspective in which uh, I see the same things happening over and over again beyond my lifetime and can write down principles for them. So to answer your question in terms of the principles, yeah, I got into an, an exercise that I'd recommend for everybody out there. Um, whenever you're f making a decision that's an important decision, um, you're used to just making that decision and moving on. I developed an exercise that I would write down my criteria for making those decisions. So that would be my principles. Those so you had a decision journal almost. A, a decision what? A journal about how you... Yes, you're... a decision journal. Right. And which are these those written principles, which are really what is in the book mostly. So one by one, how do I make that decision? What are the cause effect relationships? So when another one of those comes along, I remember it and I you know, communicate it. And this has been invaluable to me also in dealing with people because we could deal with each other better. I can have those stress tested. It's reasonable you look at that and you say, if this thing came along, would you do this it the way I'm describing? Would you operate by that principle? And you can have back and forth and refine the principles. Then that leads one to think in a principled way rather than in the snowstorm that you're right. talking, this yep. blizzard of everything that comes at people. Instead, it's like you look at everything and you see everything as another one of those. So like a duck or a species, right? right. You think, okay, what species is it? How do I deal with that species in the most effective way? And then I found out that I could put those into algorithms. In other words, that you know, starting 30 years ago, I was able to say if I have that criteria, uh, 
Yeah. You know, we called them formulas then. Yeah. Now they're algorithms. But we, I would write down if if this happened, then do this, and I would write that down. And then I learned how the computer could be a partner, and so it changed everything by writing that those principles down, and then also putting them to algorithm. It changed my relationships with people. It changed. It allowed us to have an idea of meritocracy. How instant was that from the the kernel of kind of um, almost going bankrupt to knowing that you had to start stress testing your ideas against other other people and other ideas and developing principles for making decisions? Was that like an overnight thing? Or well, it, no. It's it, one thing leads to another, and it's an evolutionary thing. Over, um, I guess the biggest reaction to that probably happened over the next let's say two years or okay. something. Um, first, there's the pain. And then and then there's the dilemma. The dilemma is, um, how do I not let this happen again? Or avoid it, yeah. But also um, not lose the upside. Yeah. In other words, there's this upside, and I want to grab the upside. I want to have the greatest life I could possibly have and, and be right. But also, the greatest upside produces downside. So it started me to go um, into the calculation of how I could do that. But it also just naturally gave me a humility, you know. And then I was at that juncture. Do I do I go to work for somebody else or do I yeah. do this? So over that period of time, then you do something um, and then you find out how that turns out. And then you modify it and modify it. But it told me... Idea meritocratic decision making is the best decision making. In other words, that um, if you do this well, you will radically improve what your decisions are. There are only two things you need to do to be successful. First, you have to know what the best decisions are. And second, you have to have the courage to do them. But you might think in your head that you have those right decisions. When you start to realize that there's a world out there and that you know how to sort through those things to find out what the best decisions are. You radically raise your probability. So it was the evolutionary process of seeing that and not giving up on that. You know, thoughtful disagreement is not an easy thing for a lot of people. People are instinctually reluctant to disagree. That's a great barrier, right, to yeah. learning. So it, you know, that was a journey um, of how we could, you know, disagree well and have an idea meritocracy so what is an idea meritocracy well an, an, an idea meritocracy is when the best ideas win out and the way that you have to have it there are three steps that you have to do first you have to put your honest thoughts out there a lot of people have problems doing that but you have to you have to welcome others doing it and you have to do it so you have to put them on the table to look at them second you have to have thoughtful disagreement. In other words, the ability to take in and have a back and forth in a quality way so that you can make better decisions than you could make individually. And we have protocols for doing that that are described in the book. And then third, you have to have ways that if disagreements remain, that you think are fair, appropriate, agreed upon ways of getting past that disagreement. Because not everybody's going to get what they want. And the problem that most people have at that point is that either 
there is an autocratic decision maker or a democratic decision maker. Neither of those work well. The autocratic decision maker is just the guy who's the boss who says, okay, well, now I'm going to do this. That's a problem because there, others don't own it. And how do you know that you're right? You can't be arrogant. And then there's democratic decision making. And that means everybody has the same votes, the same opinion. That's not sensible because they have different merits to that. So if you have an idea meritocracy, you have to know also the merit of people's thinking. And so we go through the process of being able to identify in fair ways, in ways that we all agree to, of ways of knowing what's the merit of each thing. And we literally have scores of these um, tests and whatever they are that become the scores. So we have believability-weighted voting. So, I mean, literally, if, if I'm running something and we're in a group and three people who have higher levels of believability than I do – uh, think that uh, it should be one thing, and I think it should be something. Um, there's going to be a questioning back and forth. I put myself in the mode of a learner so that I can take in and then make the best decision. You have to know that the best decision that you can make isn't necessarily the one that you're attached to that's in your head. Right. That's idea of meritocratic decision-making. I like that a lot. I want to talk about like how do people adjust to an environment like that? where they have a believability score. What is believability? Believability means um, that some people have a greater probability of having a better insight or a better opinion than something else. I'll use an example. You have a medical problem. Okay, your own believability on the subject is low. Right. You go to a doctor. Okay. That doctor has a certain level of belief. Another doctor has another level of believability. You want to handle it well? Go to three highly believable people who are willing to disagree with each other and hear that disagreement and, and then, interact and bring out that disagreement and see where there's agreement so that you get to the other side so when you either have agreement or you understand the disagreements, you're then in a position to make a better decision. That's an example of believability-weighted decision-making. Then there's just the mechanics of how you get to assign each person the believability. But if I use that example with your doctor, that's how you're making that decision. That's what believability-weighted decision-making is. So regarding your question of what it's like and, 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 and so on. I have this belief that everybody goes in going, of course, I want to be a part of this environment. And then they get in and there's this dose of reality that comes with it. That Ex is exactly. That's, that's what it is. Okay. So um, before anyone joins Bridgewater, we explain to them all of this and what their challenges are going to be and so on, because they're not used to operating this way. Um, our educational system doesn't allow it. Um, our work environments doesn't allow it. There's so much that stands in the way of doing that. So the first ex thing is, do you intellectually want it? Because there are two you's in you, really, in your brain. There's the thoughtful, intellectual part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex that is thoughtful. And you said, I would like to know. I would like to know what people think. I would like to be able to fully convey what I think. I would like to work myself through this idea of meritocratic. I would like to know my weaknesses. Do you want to know your weaknesses or do you not want to know your weaknesses? I'd like to get to know my weaknesses. So those people intellectually yeah. come and they say, I'm going, I buy into that. Yeah. Okay. Then there's an emotional part of the brain. That emotional part of the brain comes 
Uh, it's genetically programmed from uh, literally Evolution, millions yeah. of years ago in which there's a part of our brain, the amygdala, which has this fight or flight thing. And when there's um, that kind of frankness and that kind of exploration of one's weaknesses, people can think that they're being attacked instinctually. So that wa- why wouldn't you want to know those things out of curiosity to have a quality back and forth? So um, there's an emotional... So when people come in, they understand very well that they have their two U's, we call it their two U's, that are going to struggle with each other. So they're prepared for the struggle. And then they go through it. And that's largely what happens. As they go through it, they regularly encounter it. And because they're mindful of it, they know it's their two U's struggling with it. And then also struggling with others who see things differently to pass through that. And so that exercise is what they go through. Um, and most, we call it getting to the other side, because when you go through that, um, you know, you're, you're, you're recognized, you're faced with the choice. Do you want to go back to an environment in which people are hiding things and the office is a political environment and you don't really know what's going on and you can't speak up and nobody else can speak up? So they, when they intellectualize, they, they work themselves through it. And we say when they get to the other side. It's great. Like they love it. They don't want to operate any other way because they um, they know even their weaknesses. They can be more of themselves. A big part of this is that uh, we have meaningful work and meaningful relationships. Okay, they're equal priorities, and they reinforce each other. Um, so to know that people are helping them through that, that this is not a, um, an environment in which there's somebody trying to hurt you, but to explore what's true. By going through that exploration of what is true and doing it in an idea meritocratic way where there's that, uh, that meaningful relationships, it helps people get to the other side. Then those who, who make it to the other side really don't ever want to work anywhere else in the, in the sense that they start to think, um, you know, first of all, the relationships are important and that, that, that's healthy. So it's a transition. It's it's probably like a transition of trying to eat healthy and exercise and do those types of things. Typically takes about 18 months. Who thrives in that? Like what are the markers for someone that's less likely to succeed and what, what are the indicators that somebody is more likely or more probable to succeed? Um, it is that um, what I guess I would describe as the capacity to rise above oneself to look down on oneself, um, to, to, in other words, that, that combination of need to understand as well as open-mindedness. We, we, we describe it as the balance of assertiveness and open-mindedness. To, to know that you, you're not blindly following, that you have an opinion, you have an independent thing, and to know that that opinion simultaneously could be wrong and to then be curious, so to find out how do I know whether I'm wrong, and do that in an idea meritocratic way. People who can juggle those two things uh, can make it. Would you say that's almost a continuum that you're constantly sliding on depending on the type of decision you're making and the people that are in the room, maybe based on the believability of their opinions? You should shift more towards an open mind versus... If not, or am I thinking about that in the wrong way? Um, I think what you're, what you're saying is absolutely true. I think the big question is, do you have a whole lot of 
both open-mindedness and curiosity when you're entering that. I could say whatever meeting I'm in with whoever I'm on and and whether they're the least experienced, um, I know that's a valuable exchange. And the reason I know that that's a valuable exchange, whether I'm at the highest level of expertise with the person, in other words, they're a peer at the highest or maybe knows a lot more than I, um, it's still going to be a valuable exchange. Um, and knowing that is is valuable. And the reason I'm saying it's a valuable exchange is, first of all, in a community, um, respecting the fact that that person has the right to understand is important. At the same time, I think it's important for the parties to try to think, um, am I a teacher, student, or peer? Because if I'm speaking with somebody who really knows a lot more about them, something, I want to be asking more questions than I want to be sharing opinions. Right. And vice versa. It should be generally vice versa, or if it's a peer. So by knowing something, keeping in mind um, what that uh, situation is, it helps to helps in the navigation. You know, like I'm very curious when a very smart, respected person um, disagrees with me. Right. Right. Because then you want to know why, what is the essence? Am I missing something? Right. And if somebody who's much less experienced or less capable um, disagrees with me, I'm still curious. Um, but the first exercise we probably should go through maybe is that they're asking questions. And, and But the more I know that they have the answers, you know, the quicker I want to switch to a open-minded, uh, you know, more peer type of exchange. So you're correct in that um, uh, knowing that is helpful, but it's never the case that the open, that the discussion shouldn't be along those lines, particularly in a community. What advice would you have for somebody who works for an organization that doesn't support an idea meritocracy, but they want to learn and get better? Well, I think the first thing you have to decide is what are the most important things for yourself, right? Um, if it's the case that everybody has the right to make sense of things, the right and obligation to make sense of things. Now, if you're in an environment that doesn't allow that, doesn't allow you to ask questions and do those explorations, um, for me, you know, frankly speaking, I couldn't do that. I, I just couldn't do that. For somebody else, that may not be a problem. So you have to decide for yourself first, you know, is what what is the right environment? What do you like? What's, what's important? If it's a really high important thing to you, um, uh, then you will find it. It may not be at that job. It may be at the next job. It may not be 100% exactly the way you want it. It may, But it, you can find a by and large way of, of, of finding it. And it's not just the organization you're with. It's the relationships you're in. Because this doesn't end up just with your organization. It's like if you're having a partner. Yeah. How do you deal with your partner? Your, uh, it could be a spouse. It could be anybody. How are, how do you de- what's your relationship? How are you going to get past the disagreement? So it's the same three questions. Can you put your honest thoughts on the table to look at together? Yeah. Can you have thoughtful disagreement on how to get past them? And when you disagree, do you have an ability to, what is your mechanism to getting past that disagreement? 
Do the principles that bind you together, are they more important than the ones that divide you? What are your principles? These same things apply in personal relationships as well as uh, work relationships. Are are people more successful at Bridgewater coming in at, um, say, above 30 or right out of school? Uh, It really doesn't, doesn't make too much difference, although the reasons make differences. The people who come directly from school are um, tend to be a little bit more arrogant, know a little bit less, and go through a transformation that's uh, pretty much easier. They're more adaptable. So that's why they're prone to like it, but it, but also depending on whether they can get off the, over the arrogance part um, it will be important. The person who comes later in career who likes Bridgewater is so sick of the organization that they work for, that they work for in terms of and, and the bureaucracy and all of that, so that it's like an oasis. So they come with different perspectives. You know, it's equally likely to succeed or fail in any of those groups. It depends on their perspective, though. They have different perspectives. Um, your principles are packed with kind of mental models of how you think we should calibrate to the world. Which of them are the least well understood or misunderstood? Um, the most is this issue of mis- of thoughtful disagreement. This, uh, so thoughtful disagreement, also um, what the purpose of these principles are like. So sometimes people think that the thoughtful disagreement is a being mean with people. And sometimes people also think that, another misunderstanding, is that these principles are like a dogma, okay? Is this, is Bridgewater a cult? Is it a dogma or something like that where it's it's the exact opposite? In other words, it's an idea meritocratic. If, right. if we don't have ground rules about how we can challenge each other and do those things, we would not be able to have an idea meritocratic environment. So it's, uh, you know, it's a radically trans. So those would be the two things, you know, are we being mean? No, we're not being mean. It's, we have tough love with each other. Right. Okay. That's what it is. No, it's not meanness. And secondly, it's an idea meritocracy that allows radically different points of view to be thrashed through and, and, and gotten past, uh, rather than, um, something that's uh, asking everybody to behave the same way. In the book, you talk about tough love as being one of the best gifts you can kind of give somebody. Um, Do you Tell me about that. Walk me through why you think that's the case. Well, because the most important thing I can give anybody is strength, right? That feedback, that that critical feedback, that, uh, that toughness to let you strive, to let you make mistakes. I talk in the book about how it's important to make mistakes and how um, uh, making a mistake is not a problem, that um, not learning from mistakes is a problem. So that's difficult. Skin your knees, strive, develop that, those strengths. That's what tough love is. If you spoil somebody, so to speak, if you, if you're, if you don't do those things that allows them to get better, um, that's not, uh, in my opinion, you know, true love. That's not, that's not helpful. So tough love, if you could think about that, I gave the example of Vince Lombardi and the old, you know, in the football in, in terms of that. The mi- image of tough love is a, 
it's it's a healthy thing and it's a particularly difficult kind of love to give because it's often not appreciated you know at that point because what are you doing or give me what i want as you it's human nature but if you really understand that it's good for somebody and it's good for the community it's very important has your implementation of the principles changed over the years yeah how well you know in, in so in so many different ways um you know, first, you know, we just lived the principles. Then we had to write them down and agree on them. Then we put them in algorithms. Then we developed tools. Um, so you saw the tool in the TED Talk. I would say to your listeners, um, if you go 16-minute TED Talk, you'll get the idea of what, what's going on. Yeah, phenomenal TED Talk. Oh, the thanks. dot collector. Yeah, so you'll see a tool, right? Um, the dot collector, it'll give that per, that perspective. So you could see how technology evolved, all sorts of things evolved over that uh, that period of time. So it, it evolved over, you know, 40 years, I guess. What other technology tools do you have internally um, to aid in decision-making or give people feedback? Uh, we have a number. We have a dispute resolver. Okay, so if there's a dispute, you sort of push this button and it's an app. And it takes you through the paths of resolving that dispute. And it breaks down disputes in terms of types of dispute. If it's just you and somebody arguing, then it will it will say, um, it'll make suggestions. Um, for example, you both mutually agree on who a moderator for that dispute would be, right. a moderator or a judge, and so on. So there's one level of dispute. Then there's another level of dispute, which is like a case. But it is a... Path, it's a created pathway to resolve a dispute, like a legal system. So right. that if you have a, now a dispute with your neighbor because uh, something happened, you have a pathway to follow. So we've created a, um, a tool called a dispute resolver that does does that. Um, we have um, oh, just um, we have a thing called people profiles that uh, show profiles of different people. We have a thing called a meeting tracker. So it's the it's a computerized version of watching what's going on and then synthesizing the whole picture of what everybody's thinking so that anybody can look into that meeting and and see everybody's participating it through other people's eyes. Um, there's a tool that we help people go th- from pain to progress. Uh, you know, I as I mentioned in the book, um, an expression pain plus reflection equals progress. So we have a thing called a pain button. And the pain button means that if you have psychological pain at the moment, it makes it very easy to capture what type, what the facts about it. Is it with this person while you're in it? Then you come back to it, um, and and then it it prompts you through reflections. Like, what are you going to do about that? How will you handle it? Should you have a conversation with the person? Should you do this? Should you do that? And then what it does, it tracks your progress. Are you having that same pain over and over again of the same type? Did you follow what you set out to do in terms of that? Or did you not follow that? And so on. So it almost works like a psychologist on a daily basis to be able to take a look at that. It's like a double level of feedback almost. Well, it gives you the bio. You're giving yourself biofeedback, right? And, And so, but you're looking at yourself. It encourages the self-reflection because at the end of the day, all I want people to do is get what they want out of life, right? 
And so it's very much important for them to have that self-reflection. And so by, by reconciling their emotional um, pain that's coming within their reflection is a very, very powerful thing. We have a tool called a coach. So if you're in a situation um, and you're and you're saying, uh, you know, what, how do I think I should handle it? Um, there's a, a device that says this kind of situation. Okay, here are the, some principles that might help. Again, this isn't doctrine. This is like uh, it's the opposite of doctrine. Yeah, it is an intention that presents things easily so that you can make the choice that when you're in that situation, okay, calmly, what should I do? And here are the uh, principles that might help me get through that. A lot of these tools I'd like to get out there and make public at, at some point and figuring out how to do that because this idea of meritocratic way of operating and this knowing what you don't know and how to get past that tragic mistake of having those ideas in your head is just so invaluable. Are any of the tools connected to biometrics, like an Apple Watch for heart rate and stuff like that? or um, We haven't done that yet, um, though there are possibilities for doing that. That kind of biofeedback is really valuable. Because then you can almost hit the subconscious level of you're saying something that's making me angry even if I don't feel it, or you're saying something making me feel something because I can tell because my, my sweat pores are coming on and my heart rate is rising or... Exactly. Yeah. E exactly. We haven't made that connection yet, but it's something we probably should do and, and you know will do. Um, you have an, a culture of radical transparency. Can you define what radical transparency is? Uh, well, uh, except for a few things, a few types of things, um, it's allowing people to see everything. Um, so what it means is um, uh, all discussions, meetings, um, are taped and um, um, pretty much unless it's an ultra personal matter, we don't do that uh, unless it's something proprietary, we don't do that. But when we're encountering other things, uh, most things, we let people see things. And the reason is um, if, if you can't see things firsthand, you can't be part of the idea meritocracy, Yeah. right? If somebody's talking about you, behind there why are they talking about you right behind there wouldn't you like to know how do, can we encourage that straightforwardness so um it's one of those things where um uh, in order to maximize the idea of meritocracy we want to maximize the transparency now i know let me be clear i know that that's not for everyone and i know it's not for every organization it is it's it's been fantastic for us um, and I would recommend re recommend the approach. But it, I wouldn't say that in order to have an idea of meritocracy, you need to do that. You need to go that far. The real question is, do you, you want to have an idea of meritocracy? Once you start there, then you will go down a journey that will start to take you into questions of like, okay, how much, how far, with whom. The idea of meritocracy maybe a narrower group of people. So it's if you say it's going to be 25 people right. in, in a, I don't know, 300-person company or something, they're still facing the question of how you are with each other. Yeah. So in one fashion or another, you're going to have to deal with 
do you not know how do you work through the dealing the three questions that I the three things that I mentioned before even in a two person relationship then these techniques you will make choices about um but that radical transparency is important I'll I'll say uh also that radical transparency is coming at you fast anyway because we're now living in a world where the data that you leave about yourself all over the place is meaning that people will, you know, strangers, systems can now examine you and know you better than people who are your close friends or yeah. your spouse. They can look at you because of the, the data that you're leaving all over yourself. So it, it can be a bad thing or it can be a good thing. And But it's coming at you, that radical transparency. So I would encourage people, even if they're not having radical transparency, to start to think about how they deal with this radical transparency. I think I found it fantastic because it gives me the, not only the meaningful work, it gives me the meaningful relationships. You know, if you're with each other on a regular basis and everybody understands what you're like and there's not much to hide, I mean, there's certainly privacy, but there's not, you're generally having that kind of openness, it also makes for better relationships. Those have been my experiences for 42 years. When it goes wrong, how does it go wrong? Oh, the things that can go wrong are um, if the um, if you have uh, people who want to do your harm and will take information and distort the information to do your harm. I mean that that's that's a risk. Um, I would say that that would be you know the only risk that I've uh, experienced, and um, and that has to be a you know function of how you deal with it. Aside from technology tools. How does Bridgewater shape people's subconscious through their environment? Well, the environment, of course, shapes people's subconscious uh, a lot. And it is um, that by having, aside from the tools, by having an environment that is like this, that is what I would call intellectually, I view it, healthy, it's like living in an environment like um, a healthy environment. An environment, if you were living in a community where people ate health in a healthy way and did those habits um, and self-reinforced those kinds of behaviors, um, so it's um, and, and you know encourages that kind of uh, reflection. Um, it's one of those things where uh, the people you're around will influence you, and how you are with each other influences. Uh, each other. I love the idea of tools and kind of the baseball cards that you have, because one of the big problems in life that everybody faces, whether they know it or not, I think is determining whether the person they're sitting across from knows what they're talking about, or they're kind of an imposter and they sound like they know what they're talking about. How would you go about doing that without tech tools? Um, well, you're in one fashion or another, you first have to bring it up i mean so let's just imagine you didn't have tech tools but you have five people in a in a company a startup right the most basic thing you don't need the tech tools is the question of how you're going to be with each other right so if you can i ask you any questions can i probe you can we see how it is after a while you're going to know what you're like and you're going to discuss it you you typically 
don't have that understanding because you don't talk about a lot. You've got these scenarios going in your head, and that other person's got those scenarios. But because there's not actually truthful conversation and exploration of evidence, um, you, you you have problems. So even when there's disagreement, we we have uh, about you know what somebody's like. The fact that we can establish, and anybody can establish, sort of tests. Okay. Let's try this and see how that goes and see how well you do. What can we agree are objective criteria? And then um, we don't know what's true until uh, we pretty much reach an agreement ourselves. So if somebody's, you know, you know, there's no disagreement about strengths. We have very little disagreement about people saying you have a strength. Where you typically have disagreement is about people having a weakness. And if the person then says, oh, I recognize that I now have that weakness, that's the point we have to reach that we agree on it. Because if we still don't agree on it, well, then we say, how do we solve that together? So that there are lots of ways that individuals can I'd operate in idea meritocratic ways without tools. How do you think that people can foster this sort of open-mindedness? I mean, in your book, you kind of lay out um, what an open-minded person looks like versus a closed-minded person. How do we go about getting ourselves to the place where we want to be open-minded if we're closed-minded or if we don't even acknowledge it? I think that's probably the first step. But if we do... Is it like you dive in the deep end of this pool and people are starting to give you feedback all the time now, or is there a baby step? Well, I think the first thing, the reason I wrote the book, um, you know, I'm at a stage in my life and I want to pass it along, is to the first stage is to have people actually be able to visualize what is it like? What is that alternative What does it like? look like, yeah. Okay? And if you can visualize it, and you say, I intellectually want it, and that the only thing that's standing in my way of having it is these emotional reactions, and now I have to develop the muscles, you know, and that discipline to just get myself over those moments so that I can have it. That's the most important thing. Our whole environment does not lend itself to knowing what that alternative way of operating is. So I hope to paint it in that book so that people can see that what that alternative is like. If you see the alternative, you intellectually, you'll probably want it. And if you you'll want it, you'll do it. Yeah. Are people um, the same outside of Bridgewater as they are in the company? Like if you have a social gathering, is it a similar? Uh, it, it's, it's, it, it's almost identical. Um, it's almost identical. I mean, uh, it, it, like you, you're going to want it. Now, uh, of course, the, the ground rules are different, you know, and the way you navigate it is different because people around you are different. They may misunderstand what you're doing in terms of being straightforward. But even there, um, you know, it depends on like how you're doing it. Like if you're phrasing, um, let, let's say a complaint. Um, if I go to a restaurant, and I don't, the food isn't good. And I actually, or I have a problem with that. I think to myself almost in an ethical way. And if the owner comes by and he asks me, it almost is like an ethical question that one wrestles with. And I, if I was going to make a comment, I would have to preface that comment by saying something like, um, 
I'm trying to be helpful. You know, here is what a thing, here's what my thought is, take it or leave it. You know, that kind of thing. Um, but even more in their personal relationships, it it affects friendships. Um, you know, how you are with each other. You know, like the two things that I, I think, the only two things I require in a relationship are people to be reasonable, in other words, able to reason, mm-hmm. and to be considerate. And I will give people an enormous amount of that, and I expect an enormous amount of that. And that's that's in all relationships. And I would say that a lot of Bridgewater people um, carry that with them. You know, when we have a disagreement, are we able to reason it through, or are we going to have temper tantrums? You know, I can't. So people become more reasonable and more considerate. Um, so these are gar- carried through in a lot of ways. What are um, some of the other organizations who have cultures that you admire or that are similar that you see to your principles? I, you know, I'd, I'd be the wrong person to ask. Um, three wonderful psychologists, uh, organizational psychologists, uh, came in and examined us. Uh, I'd particularly recommend um, the works of um, Adam Grant. Um, he did a book called Originals, and he examined a bun- bunch of companies, and he found those elements. And then of another um, person by the name, a Harvard professor in organizational psychology, by the name of uh, Bob Keegan, and he wrote a book, The Deeply Developmental Organization, um, and he looked at all those organizations and, and, and contrasted them. So I would say, you know, they'd be better experts on it. Um, um, although I think that what came through all of that uh, was the notion of the meaningful work, meaningful relationships, bringing mistakes to the surface, making it okay to make mistakes, but not okay to learn, not to learn from mistakes. All of those things were um, in, in, in mind. I can't really comment on a lot of organizations because I don't know them well. To what extent do you think is leadership innate versus it can be learned? Um, I think it's probably almost entirely can be learned. Of course, in terms of the development of the brain and how uh, synapses develop and so on, the early years has a very big influence on a lot of our personal development. That's physiologically, psychologically, uh, you, you know, known. Um, but I think that there's always um, a leadership style that can be learned. In other words, there's your way of doing it. I've given personality um, tests to, um, well, I mentioned that in, in, in the book, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, um, many, many uh, incredible, successful people. And they all have some elements in common, and then they also have differences. And so there's there's a path to leadership. There are some people who are the charismatic, extroverted leader, and they find one path. There's the person who's introverted and thoughtful, and they can find another path. I think the key is, um, still in both cases, um, this combination of um, do you know where you're leading to, and how do you get that, and then how do you interact with the people so that you can bring them along, and you can make them 
um, uh, believe or grow so that they can also help leading. Leading is a lot um, um, the development of leaders so that they, in, in order to lead effectively, what you have to make is a group of people who them, can be effective themselves because that's what's going to produce the leverage and the cohesiveness. So there are different styles of being able to do that. Um, it, it's a lot learnable. Uh, you know, again, uh, I offer some thoughts in, that are in common in the book about that, but uh, I think it's a lot learnable. Do you at Bridgewater have a formal kind of leadership development program that you put people through, or is it? Yes. What does that include? Like, what does that look like? Well, when everybody comes in, there's a what we call a boot camp, and that'll um, go for two to three weeks. That gives them an immersion into um, what the culture is like. It might go three weeks if they're in the management boot camp. And then they start to get uh, skills. And then they go into their uh, job, which is an apprenticeship kind of relationship. And then um, they get um, typically about three hours of training pertaining to um, the development of those skills. And they go through experiences and we collect data on them. They look at the data and we then recalibrate how um, they learn and and then it's an evolutionary process. As they grow, we learn more about them. They learn more about themselves. We find out where they're better suited. We go through a series of experiences that continues that to happen until they continue you know, to evolve wherever they evolve to. Who's the mastermind kind of behind the development program? Because I imagine it's always evolving too. Largely, uh, me... I have two things to do, um, and then I have this great team of people, uh, and it depends what it what it's like. We have on the uh, data collection processing type of thing. We have a fellow by the name of Dave Ferrucci, who was the um, person who started and created Watson at IBM. He's um, fast, fantastic in terms of uh, machine thinking. Um, and he's a key person, but we have the CEOs of the company in, right. uh, involved. We got people involved in, um, you know, how they write algorithms and, you know, uh, so there's a, we have a team, a whole team that deals with training, you know, what that is like on a daily basis. Uh, um, so there's a lot, you know, there's, a, there's a lot of, um, uh, different people do different things up and to where we are in, uh, in this. Um, it's been a very particularly important thing for me personally to uh, make sure that the people part of this uh, was developing. Basically, the business grew up under me, right? So two things, investments. You know, my, we're talking now about um, the people part, the, the work part. So I had uh, run a business. It was an entrepreneurial endeavor and it grew and do quite a business and then at the same time i'm thinking about economics investments and markets and so i do both of those two things and now i'm passing the baton that's why 2017 by the way that's why i'm putting the book out right now yeah 2017 is my is my going from the second stage in my life to the third stage in my life. It's a transition. I am, I've stepped out as the CEO and, I, and I'm, I, um, 
let's say the transition itself, when I mean second to third stage, what I mean is in the second stage of your life, um, you're working and other people are dependent on you. First stage of your life is when um, you're learning and you're dependent on others. When you get into, let's say, your 20s or when that is, and you enter your second stage of your life, you're working and increasingly people are dependent on you. And when you get to your 60s, let's say, um, your um, the greatest beauty that you can have, the greatest success, is in helping other people be successful. Right. It's instinctual. I want others to be successful, not me be any more successful. Because then what happens is I can then go on to my third stage and they can be in their second stage. And it's quite um, uh, normal in families. Like if you think about your parents, okay, and you think about your kids in terms of your life, when you went on to your second stage and you became self-sufficient and you could do it all yourself, yeah. They could watch beauty happen, yeah. and they became free yeah. of those obligations, yeah. and their goal is to have that. So that's the transition that I'm in. 2017 is my transition year. It's why I wrote the book, and it's why um, I'm in that process. So that's that's what's going on. Buffett said uh, one of the things that he kind of worries about is keeping the, the culture at Berkshire Hathaway when he, he passes. Is that something that worries you? No, no, it's, it, I would, I would say it's like a, it's like a family in the next generation, right? It's now up to others to make mm. that choice, to not be attached. So if I have my kids who then become grown adults, mm. I want them to make the choices that they want to make. Now, I hope that they will make the healthy choices. And did we, you know, did we raise them well? Do they, you know, in other words, to make those choices, but they need to have their own experiences and have that kind of independence. So at that age, you you let go and you enjoy them doing it their own way. Even in the, even, you, you can't start at that age. You have to start at another, at an early age that they can make their decisions. So I don't have an attachment to that. What I did have, uh, most importantly, was my sense of, um, do I pass it along clearly and well? That's why, in other words, my writing that book relieved me mm -hmm. of what my responsibility is. What others do with it is up to them. Right. Right? So I did my job. If, if you want to read the book and it's helpful and you reject it or take it, or, and that's true of Bidville Bridgewater, great. Okay? I did my job. Now it's you to live your life. How did the principles transfer over to the world of philanthropy? Uh, you know, it's the it's same thing. It's part of this, uh, you know, evolution. I started, I didn't have any money. And um, then you acquire money. And, uh, you know, for, for money, for me, m money was not very much uh, a priority to begin with. Um, it just happened to be the thing that I do it produces a lot of money if you do it well. Um, but anyway, uh, you evolve and you make your choices. Um, and I think as you go higher and higher level uh, of evolution and maybe as you get older or you um, also this meditation has helped me uh, feel connected to other people feel connected beyond me i realize i'm part of an ecosystem i'm an infinitesimally small part of an ecosystem 
And I really do feel that the ecosystem is much more important than me, and I can see it from that higher level kind of thing. So I feel connected to others. And then I think about what my incremental, what, what are the increments, so uh, and, and what it can mean. So on the margin, what is it going to mean to another person, that amount of money? And I also view it as an, uh, a life cycle thing. In other words, you know, I don't know, you start with nothing and then you end with nothing. So uh, it's part of that evolutionary process. Um, so it's like the issue of um, what, what I call spirituality. Spirituality, um, I don't mean religion. I mean the notion of feeling connected to others and the whole and, and that, that if that whole is good, then you're good kind of thing. And I, so I think that um, uh, one, in terms of philanthropy, it becomes a, a, a natural extension of that. Um, it doesn't become, uh, for me, um, it has not become something that I think of even as a peripheral activity or philanthropy or giving away. The question is, what do you want to do? Like it's, it's, you know, like I'm excited about doing some things or I feel needs to do some things. So it's that kind of experience. And by the way, it's interesting because I thought I, you know, have a lot of money and I have a lot of money relative to um, um, most people. Um, and then you realize through this that you have a tiny bit of money relative to all that needs to be done. And so then that becomes, you know, this other dimension. So I think probably philanthropy is one of those things that um, has come to me well, maybe starting 10 years ago, something like that at that stage because uh, of these various evolutionary considerations. You've said that um, the future is going to look very different in the book. I'm wondering what do you think will be the same? Um, I, th I think that, you know, human nature changes very slowly. So um, I think the, you know, the conflict between thoughtfulness and emotion individually and between people will probably always be with us. You know, that human nature will be with us. I think what will, uh, what will change there is the um, role of algorithmic decision-making. I mean, I think we're largely entering an environment in which, uh, not to exaggerate it, but there are going to be people who are writing the algorithms that will replace the people who are doing jobs. Yeah. And, um, and, and so there's going to be a bifurcation. And I think that... Um, um, Learning how to code is like learning how to read and write for the next generation, and you want to be on that side of it. And I think, um, I think what will be the same is um, conflict between people. That that's what worries me. Um, it worries me because, uh, you know, let's go back to basics. You know, as a country, do the do the principles that bind us together, are they greater than the ones that divide us? Right. Can, you know, this is a time to be very clear, for everybody to be very clear what their individual principles are, 
the President of the United States, each person, the country, and work ourselves through. Can we do this well collectively? Or are we in a fight with each other that's going to actually divide us apart? And it's going to be more challenging because the circumstances of the people who are in, let's call it the bottom 60% of the population, are very different and they're hurting. And there's, there's a, it's a major problem. Death rates are rising, just wholly different economy than those are in the, let's say, the top 40%, let alone the top 1%. So um, conflict will be the same. Okay, how we approach it will be the same. You know, uh, that's that's why I'm hoping that there can be this idea meritocratic decision making that pulls us together and allows us to resolve resolve those things so that we can do those things. We can have thoughtful disagreement and then we can have mechanisms to get past our disagreements. Uh, th that that conflict issue will be the same and it's going to be a bigger issue in the future. Do you think that that relates to kind of first order thinking versus second order thinking? I mean, one of the sections of your book that I loved was kind of talking about people that optimize for the first tranche versus people that optimize for the second or third or kind of fourth layer effects to that. Do you think that'll always be that'll always be the same and it's key, right? It's the um quite often it's the great trick of life. You know, in so many things the first order consequence, the thing that you get first, is like a trick that will the opposite consequence. Like, like you know, why is it that it seems like all food that tastes good is probably bad for you? Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that it is generally, yeah. but I mean, it, you know, why is it that? Why is it the things um, that are fun or I mean, somehow seem to be harmful and it's the opposite way. Why is it that exercise is painful and yeah. it's good for you and, you know, and it's the opposite. It's almost like life is tricking you in terms of putting out first order consequences. And then the second order consequences is the opposite. Okay, now, can you yeah. see that? Can you deal with that? Because in order to get what you really want in life, you're going to have to pay attention to that second order consequence. I don't care which you which you pay attention to. It, at the end of the day, when I ask you, do you want to be, I don't know, fat? Do you want to be um, whatever? Do you want to do those? So that notion of can you consider your second order consequences and then your even your third order consequences um, is so important. And, the, and you can, even though you can't do it yourself, maybe sometimes, by having the help of others. I want to circle back to this algorithmic decision-making for a second. You, you mentioned that it, it's coming. It's coming quickly. Who do you think is uh, at risk in a corporate job that might not think that they're at risk right now? Well, um, I mean, we I guess all generally, know generally, generally speaking, um, I'd say almost in, anybody who isn't riding the algorithms is is at risk. I guess there are some things, you know, it'll be a while before the robots give good massages and it'll be, you know, <laughs> it'll be, uh, um, you know, there are um, the imagination. It'll be a long time before those intuitions and those imaginations are created by computers, okay? But it won't be a long time 
uh, before computers produce better quality thinking. Would you feel different if you listened to a computer-generated song or music uh, and it, you were told that it was computer-generated versus a, a human who had a story of craftsmanship around it? What a great question. What a great question. Um, I have an attachment for the humanity, right? So I, But I would probably also have an admiration for the marveling of how that can be created. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess I would, I would say, ah, there's that transition from, right. from the one to the other, you know. But I would, yeah, it because reflection that would have a little bit of excitement and a little bit of almost nostalgia, right? You're a fierce observer of human nature. What's the most common mistake that you see successful people make? Well, again, the most successful, the most common mistake, I suppose, which is made less by uh, successful people, but still is too often made by successful people, um, is thinking that they know the answers without having the best perspective and adequately stress testing it so that they're taking in so they, they can make the absolute best decision. Why do you think, or maybe it's a misconception on my part, but why do you think so many successful people are uh, unhappy? Is it that the strategies they've chosen to become successful are making them? Well, I think the question is a, is a deep psychological question of why, what are they going after, right? And are, is success going to provide that? So, uh, for example, um, if they're going after status, if they're going after the admiration of others and so things, I don't think that that's going to bring them happiness. Probably a lot of people who are successful are compulsive and trying to get those types of things. So I, I think a lot of people um, versus, uh, you, you know, so the question is, um, is, it a, is it a personality disorder? That is making people continue to strive to get something that they can that is within them and that they can have that. So I, um, yeah, I don't think. Um, why are you doing it? Uh, you know, is it the thrill? Right. Uh, like, like, you know, for me, like early on, um, it was first the adventure. Yeah. You know, uh, the thrill of the experimentation and the doing that, and then the thrill of getting better. Okay, and then I have my own evolution, and um, and I describe in the book how my perspective had changed. Wow, my, how my perspective had changed from the early days to the later days. But I, anyway, I, I won't reflect on me. I, I would I would say that um, um, community. By the way, we're talking about happiness. There is virtually no correlation between the amount of one money one has and one's happiness. That's pretty well known past a certain basic. Uh, the factor that's the highest correlation is whether is relationships, sense of community mm. across societies. That's genetically programmed into us. Um, it's estimated that somewhere between a million and two million years ago, before it was even man, before we were the, were the ancestors of man, that that got programmed into us. But anyway, it's one of the things that's the most important source of happiness. And when I look back on myself, 
and I and I think uh, what was the what was the thing that um, I most was made happy by? Um, it was relationships, the See, meaningful relationships. Intellectually, I feel I contributed something, but the greatest source was that relationships in the community. So a lot of people who are going after status, success, admiration, I think um, the question is, are they making the most of the relationships, I think? That's important. So I have a question on that, because if we move to, I mean, one of the economic ideas that countries are tossing around or even experimenting with in some cases are uh, universal basic income for people that are displaced perhaps by technology. How do you think that interacts with this high correlation to sense of purpose and connectedness with our peers? How, how do you think that? Um, the universal um, basic income is a complex issue, but I'd, I'd say the following. Um, there is income and then there's usefulness. And I think the most important, past this basic income, taking care of some of the basics, the most important thing is usefulness. By the way, I don't believe that the basic things are being well taken care of. Um, I could digress into that a little bit. Uh, but um, um, we have to get purpose and usefulness. So when we talk about giving um, money, the real question is, what is that money best used for? And so that concept is that the individual could decide best for himself what it's best used for. That may be right and it may be wrong. I can't tell you whether it's right or wrong. My wife um, works in um, the most distressed school districts um, um, around. And um, at a very early age, there are major problems. Um, and we come from Connecticut. I'm from Connecticut. and She works largely in Connecticut. She um, uh, supported the doing of the study of what percentage of the students what are disconnected or disengaged. A disengaged student is a student who attends school but actually doesn't participate. They they don't study. They don't Presenteeism. Do I yeah. mean, they're sitting there, but they're not doing anything kind of. Exactly. And then disconnected is they don't know where they are. And... 22% of the students in high school students in Connecticut are one of those two things. That's huh. one in five. Okay. So the real question, I think, is at a very early age, nutrition, basic education, creating, uh, making sure that the bottom is not, um, and it's not just an education thing. Yeah. It's the family that they go home to or yep. what the circumstances are. It's the traumas that they're having in their environment. Um, so these things, um, the question is, are those best provided in some manner by somebody else? Or would you, if you gave that person the money, would they do the right things for the money? And, and some, these are difficult questions, right? I mean, my, I, I know that um, on if we take educational opportunity, um, like, I didn't have anything, and I, when I grew up, the idea of equal opportunity was like a basic right and an, right. an American dream and reality. Not equal you, outcome, but equal opportunity. Equal opportunity, right? 
And that's also the beauty of immigrants who would come here and work hard and all of that, that equal opportunity, okay? So uh, when I'm looking at it, I would want to try to find out what are the mechanisms of creating that equal opportunity, you know, not equal income, but equal opportunity. So because that usefulness, that disengaged that we're talking about, that will be replaced more by technology and that, that split that's happening is the most fundamentally important issue that we have to deal with. I want to talk a little bit about decision-making at um, Bridgewater. I mean, what is the, by and large, what is the overarching process you use for decision-making? Is it we have a decision to make, we're going to get in a room and we're going to talk about it, or is there something something that we're not seeing to this? Well, it's it's it, it's um, pretty much we have a decision making, we get in the room to do it, but the, what starts to be different from that is that rather than thinking about what our decision is, we spent more time thinking about what our criteria for making the decision is. So walk me through that a little. Give me like, um, Can you give me an example of how you would how you would go about doing that. Yeah. You have um, uh, currency crisis. You have balance of payments problem. Rather than decide, should we sell the currency or not sell the currency? We say, what are our criteria? And then we go back into all the times in history that that thing happened. Remember I said, like, everything happens over and over again? Yeah. And if you could decide what species it is. Right and have principles for dealing with that species, then you know how to deal with it best. So that's the exercise of, of saying, okay, what are our criteria for making decisions? Because if we can agree on those criteria, and then when there's disagreement, rather than making disagreement about the action, you say, what is the disagreement about the criteria? You can test the criteria. Because if you disagree on the criteria, the decision, or if you agree on the criteria, the decision basically makes itself. Right. How do you go back and correct if you're wrong? Well, same thing. You know, you experience, okay, I'm wrong. So this is pain plus reflection equals progress. So you look at, I'm experiencing the pain. Okay. Now calm yourself down and say, okay, what would I have done differently? And again, I, what I do like to do is look at all the cases in which that thing happened before, what happened differently to gain the perspective of the cause-effect relationships, and you do that. You love your mistakes. I mean, love the, you don't love the outcomes of your mistakes, of course, but you realize that the connection is it's a feedback loop, you know, so that you get that mistake, meaning that you have to then learn. I, as I say, you know, there are five steps to success. Okay, first your goals. You want to have audacious goals. You have to know what the goals are. Second, on your way to your goals, you're going to have your problems, your mistakes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you have to identify and not tolerate your problems. Then third, you have to diagnose your problems to get at their root cause. Okay. Root cause may be your weaknesses or somebody else's weaknesses, or maybe the mistakes. You got to diagnose them deeply. So once you have the diagnosis, then you have a fourth step, which is design what you're going to do differently in the future. And then once you have that design, then the fifth step is you got to do it. You have to follow through with those results. And you keep doing that, and it produces this looping, as I'm calling, this evolutionary process. So it's that 
process that, that we call it this five-step process that we're always living by. So mistakes instinctually cause us to change. My whole attitude, our whole attitude about mistakes has changed dramatically. Um, it's like um, mistakes um, trigger puzzles. And the, and the puzzle, if I solve the puzzle, I get a gem. Yeah. So the puzzle is, what would I have done differently? What, would, what should I do differently that would have produced a different result? That's a principle. You write down the principle. Okay, the gem is the principle that lets you do better in the future. So it's that kind of accumulation of learning and making the connection between the mistakes and the learning. That's, that's the process. The, the reflection process for you is, is that maybe the most important part of that? Or, or, or if you had to, or they're all interconnected, obviously. You, you need all of them. You need all of them. Yeah, I think the reflection is probably the most important. But if you're not designing your alternative to change, you're not getting anywhere. If you're not following through with that design, you're not getting anywhere. If you don't have your audacious goals so that you know where you're going, you're not going to get to the right place. Because you're not really right? on a trajectory anymore. Right. So you need your audacious goals to know where you're going. You need to recognize your problems. You need to diagnose them to the root cause. You need to do the design of what you do differently, and you need to follow through with it. Um, wh what advice would you give to a high school class of students uh, if you had to pass along a couple sentences of wisdom yeah, uh, you know, love your mistakes, Let, learn from them, um, realize that, that personal evolution and mistakes and imperfection is a part of our lives and know how to deal with it well. Value what you don't know even more than what you value what you do know. Be radically open-minded. Go for the adventure. Have the adventure. Don't mind falling and, you know, banging yourself up or scraping your knee. It, it'll pass and make the most out of your life by learning and evolving. Those would be the general themes, I suppose. This has been an amazing conversation, Ray. I want to thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Hey guys, this is uh, Shane again. Just a few more things before we wrap up. You can find show notes at farnamstreetblog.com slash podcast. That's F-A-R-N-A-M-S-T-R-E-E-T-B-L-O-G dot com slash podcast. You can also find information there on how to get a transcript. And if you'd like to receive a weekly email from me filled with all sorts of brain food, go to farnamstreetblog.com slash newsletter. This is all the good stuff I've found on the web that week that I've read and shared with close friends, books I'm reading, and so much more. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by Inktel. Every business needs great customer service in order to stand out and gain a competitive advantage. Yet many businesses struggle with how to provide their customers with world-class customer service. Inktel Contact Center Solutions is a turnkey solution for all of your customer care needs. Inktel trains their customer service reps to know your business almost as well as you do and help you build your brand. 
Managing a call center can be a complicated, expensive, and time-consuming task, and you still might not be able to do it well. So do what many leading companies do and outsource your customer service needs to a partner who specializes in taking care of your contact center needs. Intel can provide your company with every touchpoint, including telephone, email, chat, and social media. As a listener of this podcast, you can get up to $10,000 off if you go to inktel.com slash Shane. That's I-N-K-T-E-L dot com slash Shane.